1948, a former Arctic explorer by the name of Richard H.G. Bonnycastle got himself a job at Winnipeg's Advocate Printers. When his employer decided that they should start printing paperbacks to keep their presses busy, he found himself on the ground floor of a new publishing company. They started cranking out titles in 1949, selling books for about 50 cents a pop, mostly acquired westerns and mysteries, along with the occasional original. And they were selling, but not enough to do much more than break even. But Richard Bonnycastle's fortunes were about to take a turn. Through a series of deaths and stock transfers, he suddenly became the company's majority owner. He was free to do as he wished, and he wished to bring his wife Mary on board as the company's new editor. Now, Mary Bonnycastle was a woman with literary preferences and a vision. Specifically, she had a preference for the romance novels produced by Mills and Boone. At her urging, the company struck a deal with the British publisher to reprint those Mills and Boone paperbacks for a North American audience. Suddenly, romance novels were flying off the shelves, way faster than the westerns and mysteries. By 1964, they eclipsed them altogether. From that point onwards, Richard H.G. Bonnycastle's publishing company would focus exclusively on romance novels. Mary's instincts were right on, and her canny business move turned a small, struggling paperback publisher into the largest publisher of romance novels in the world. That's right. The company we're talking about is Harlequin Enterprises ULC, or simply Harlequin a name synonymous with romance publishing. All this is to say, romance novels have a long history and deep roots in Canada. And yet, when most people think of Canadian literature, they're probably not thinking of slow burns or bodice rippers. As a genre, it's often overlooked by non-romance readers, and yet it's incredibly commercially successful. Romance novels were actually the best-selling category of books in Canada last year. I'm Rebecca Diem, and this is Read the North, a podcast about Canlit from Toronto's favorite book festival, The Word on the Street. This season, we're digging into the wonderful world of genre. So grab your favorite enemies to lovers, get cozy in only one bed, and get ready for a happily ever after. Today's episode is all about romance. Romance readers are some of the most voracious readers in the world. And with book adaptations like Netflix's Bridgerton series reaching mainstream audiences, romance is truly having its moment. New readers are flocking to the genre, and existing fans are using social media to create deeper communities around their favorite tropes and subgenres. An increasingly diverse range of romance writing is available, and Canadian publishers are working to stake out a bigger slice of the market. There's never been a better time to be a romance reader in Canada. But with so many options, how do you find your perfect match in the romance section? What can you expect from a romance novel? And why do some people love romance novels so much, while others feel comfortable dismissing the entire genre? Well, spoiler alert, misogyny might have something to do with that. 
We'll get into that later. For now, let's meet our first guest for the episode. A trailblazing bookseller who, like many romance fans, admits to reading Harlequins at way too young an age. Please welcome our friend Jenny Poole of Happily Ever After Books. Oh, hi. Uh, My name is Jenny Poole. I'm the owner of Happily Ever After Books. We are Canada's first romance-exclusive bookstore, and uh, we're online right now, and we do in-person pop-ups about once a month in the Toronto and the GTA. Wonderful. Uh, Tell me about the origins of Happily Ever After Books. Like, What inspired you to start the store, and where would you like to see it go in the future? Well, I... I feel like if you are a reader, sometimes like everyone has that dream of like wanting to own that bookstore. And so I've always kind of thought, oh, wouldn't that be fun? And then the pandemic happened and I went from working in an office with like 80 plus people to like just being in my dining room and realizing that I only really worked with like four people a day. (laughs) And those were the only four people I talked to for about a year and a half. And so I realized that, like, I missed sort of seeing people and talking to people about stuff that wasn't really work-related. And I was like, you know, how can I do that outside of work? And I knew that, you know, romance bookstores existed in the United States with, you know, uh, The Ripped Bodice and Love Sweet Arrow and now the Meet Cute Bookshop that's just opened in San Diego. And so I knew that they worked, but... I was like, well, there's not one in Canada. Maybe there should be. And if there should be, like, maybe it should just be me. (laughs) Maybe I should do it. So I did it. And it was, like, pretty scary because you don't want to be the first to fail (laughs) also, (laughs) you know. So it was, like, a little bit like, is there a reason people hadn't done it before? And no, there isn't a reason, really. Uh, Just people hadn't done it because... You know, romance, despite it being 2023, uh, romance still doesn't maybe get the credit or applause it deserves sometimes. And so no one really was like, I'm just going to do it. So I did it. What do you think the value or draw is of a genre-specific shopping experience? Um, I think you're going to get more of what you're looking for and what you like right off the bat. So you can really get a little bit more granular, I guess, in some of the stuff that you have. Um, And one of the things that I really like about the way that I'm running Happily Ever After Books is that we can bring in like some indie published authors that maybe aren't in Indigo because they are an indie author who had a very small print run. So because we're not ordering big quantities, but because we also have the space because we're not ordering other genres, we have some flexibility in, in getting those books in stock. So all of that helps with, you know, giving someone an experience that's tailored exactly to the specific thing that they like. And when it comes to romance, that's even more important because for a long time, and and I would say it's better now, it definitely is, but, you know, romance gets a lot of derision. It's the trashy book. It's the not very intelligent book. It's the, you know, all these sort of like weird misconceptions that, you know, have come over the decades that romance has been published. And so for me, having a place where someone can come and buy romance books that in a judgment-free zone that they won't ever be looked down on, that like 
literally we will celebrate every single person who comes into our store asking for a romance no matter what kind of romance it is that's the kind of experience that's why i wanted to create the the store i think jenny is the perfect guest to start this episode with in addition to her obvious bookseller bona fides she really is an expert on literary love stories Romance is a genre abundant with tropes and so, so many subgenres. There are books catering to pretty much any romantic niche you can think of, and probably even some that you can't. If you think you don't like romance, well, maybe you just haven't found the right romance for you. Yeah, there are. There are many. If you can think of it, an idea, it probably has a romance novel written about it. <laughs> like, it's really, it's really, like, that sort of prolific. Um, but, you know, there's the kind of classics, the big ones. There's historical romance, which is anywhere these days from, like, 1960. I'm sorry, anyone who <laughs> lived in 1960, but it's true. Uh, 1960, like, and then beyond, like, before that. But it primarily centers around the Regency, so like Bridgerton era or like the Victorian era. Those are the two kind of biggest sort of sub-subgenres in historical romance. Then there's Paranormal, which kind of has like, is also another broad one because inside Paranormal you have witches, you have werewolves, you have vampires, you have aliens, you have... I remember that like Men in Kilts was a big one when I was in high school. Oh. Yes, in historical romance, there definitely is, like, a whole subgenre that's just, like, Scotland. (laughs) It's just, like, Highlander times. Doesn't really matter the year. It's just Highlander times. Scotland. (laughs) They are in kilts, and they go by Laird. That's all you need to know. (laughs) There is, you know, so then there's contemporary romance, which is very much, like, modern-day It's more broken down by, like, tropes, which is, like, very specific. So contemporary romance is kind of its own thing. And then there's more, like, there is some, like, erotic romance that's a little bit crosses genres, maybe. So, like, erotic romance could be contemporary, but it could also be, like, a little bit um, paranormal or fantasy-ish. There's things like that. The TikTok has definitely given rise to the monster genre, uh, subgenre of romance. And you're looking at you're looking at anything. You're looking at dragons, krakens, mothmen, gargoyles. What else? Let me think. Uh, minotaurs. Oh, couldn't forget the minotaurs. The monster g- romance genre this is, is like the sub 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 genre. Yeah, um, it's it's like wild, monster. but it's. Big. It's very prolific right now. In addition to having an encyclopedic knowledge of the many subgenres that fit under the umbrella of romance, Jenny also has some pretty firm opinions on what doesn't fit under that umbrella. Surprisingly, this is something that all our guests agreed on. If you want to write a romance novel, there's lots of room to let your creativity run wild. Want to set it in space? Underwater? A hundred years in the past? A thousand years into the future? Make the love interest a half bull? Go for it. You can do whatever you want. As long as you follow a few basic rules. Like, what's the difference between, like, a romance book and a book with romantic elements? Well, I'm so glad you asked. I know Um, you have strong feelings about this. (laughs) I do. Did you hear me fighting with Peter on Here and Now on CBC last week? Yeah. And I was like, no. Anna it was Karenina a great interview. You did a is, great job. I was like, oh my god, I feel bad that I'm kind of arguing with him on his own show. But like, I was like, no, Anna Karenina is not a romance. 
<laughs> no, 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 no. And then he threw me a bone of being like, oh, I guess Romeo and Juliet is. And I was like, yeah, like, you know, two teenagers killing themselves is not romance. So what is a romance? A romance is basically there's two things is that it has to have a happily ever after. So it ends with the two characters happily together. They don't have to be married, you know, like that's kind of a archaic thing, but they have to be together at the end of the book, happy together. Could be happily for now. That's also allowed, mm-hmm. um, you know, especially with things like the older YA or like new adult ones. <laughs> You're not getting an epilogue where they're getting married and having babies, but it doesn't matter. It ends with a happily, happily for now. And then there are books with romantic elements or romantic themes, but they don't necessarily end with the two characters like together and that's where the book ends. So it could be that the plot is mostly focused on one character and they may have a romance in that book, but the book's plot is not centralized around the love story between those two characters. So it's not really a romance. So that's two rules. One, the book must end with our lovers happy together. And two, the romance must be at the center of the plot. If you don't have those things, it's not a romance. And then there's a third element to consider. So to me, a romance novel is something that I would sell to a romance imprint. Carly Waters is a senior literary agent and senior vice president at PS Literary. She's also a host of the popular writing podcast, The No One Tells You About Writing. As a literary agent, she's the person that authors partner with to manage their business, shop their projects around to editors, and hopefully get them publishing deals. Most agents will specialize in a few areas. For example, while Carly's a bit of a generalist, she doesn't work in middle grade sci-fi or fantasy. But she does work in romance. When Carly is choosing which authors to work with, one of the biggest questions she has to ask herself is if their book is a project that she can sell. And to sell that project to a romance publisher, she has to be sure she can pitch it as a romance. So meaning like it will follow some formulaic tropes or, you know, there's certain somebody moved to New York City and is like coming back to their small town vineyard and like, California or whatever, right? So there are these types of things that are expected about it. I could talk for hours on this, which I do on my own podcast about the difference between upmarket fiction and commercial fiction, right? So romantic fiction, like romance, falls under commercial. And so for me, like novels with romantic elements generally fall under more upmarket fiction because romance is like a B plot to something, whatever else your A plot is, meaning like Is it, you know, career or family or something else like that, which tends to be more book clubby, which then tends to be more upmarket. What are some of the things you look for specifically when choosing to represent a romance novel? Right. So romance is such a wonderful category because to me, it's like the most human of all categories. You know, I think there's just so many categories out there and so many books, but like everybody just wants to feel love. Like how warm and squishy and lovely is that, right? It's like this this unifying thing that could bring us all together. The other thing about romance is 
it is an incredibly best-selling category. And I think publishing can get up on its high horse about like what literary fiction is and award-winning titles. And obviously those can be lovely in their own regard. And those are also very talented authors. But you know who else is really talented is genre writers. Genre writers are also very talented, right? To be able to convey all of the nuances of love and romance and also follow, like, you know, there are a certain number of tropes that are kind of the like grumpy sunshine, right? And all of these little tropes. So it, it is a formulaic to a certain extent, but to write a book and not appear to be formulaic is very, very hard. So I just have the utmost respect for genre writers and romance authors. So for me, I'm looking for really crackling dialogue. That's a big thing for me. Um, you know, Emily Henry, she's an incredibly talented um, dialogue writer. And I really want to feel like things are, you know, we're moving fast and we're in the moment. And I think there's also, you know, various heat levels that we can talk about with romance. That always plays into it as well. So, you know, I think the most important thing to me is, is this book emotionally satisfying as a reading experience? That's the most important thing to me. Writers like Emily Henry are a big part of the current mainstream moment romance is having. But most of the genre's biggest names come from south of the border. So what are folks in Canlet doing to get more homegrown authors into the conversation? I want to say maybe five to seven years ago, I think Canadian publishing started to make a real effort to make inroads into the more commercial market. I think the US and I think the UK has a longer history of publishing commercial fiction really well and loudly. And I think Canada was potentially a little bit behind on that for a number of reasons. But as I said, I think that we have some publishers like Doubleday Canada, you know, making a lot of strong effort. I also think, you know, HarperCollins Canada has made a really big effort. I think Simon & Schuster Canada, you know, their efforts into the commercial fiction space, including romance fiction, is included in all of that. So I do think, I do see large publishers really investing in commercial fiction. And I also think it's paying off, right? Because publishing is a business. So it's like, we, we can put effort into things and they have to, you know, prove their value and prove their worth. Like, anything being stocked in the bookstore. If it's not being sold through, the bookstores aren't going to order more copies of it. So this is like a system that we have to exist within. So I'm very happy to see we're making growth and progress. And I think Indigo, obviously our largest um, bookstore chain, is very proudly putting a lot of commercial titles and romance titles at the front of the store. And, and that makes all the difference. Yeah, absolutely. I think I, I recently saw a BookNet Canada presentation saying that romance was the top selling genre in Canada last year. Yeah, you haven't said the word book talk yet, so if you want to get into that, we can get into that because that's obviously one of the one of the big reasons for that. <laughs> Honestly, it's almost surprising it took this long for it to come up. You can't really talk about the state of romance publishing these days without talking about book talk. So yeah, let's get into it. People who love romance, love commercial fiction or upmarket women's fiction, um, they're a really passionate bunch, you know? They love what they read. They love talking about what they read. The other thing about romance readers is that they read a lot. They read a lot, right? This is the category of people who are keeping our book business afloat because they are buying many books a month, if not many books a week. So so yeah, I think there's incredible, incredible communities on the internet that really support the books they're really passionate about. Whether that community is 5,000 followers, whether that community is 50,000 followers, 500,000 followers, these are all unique microcosms and these people are, you know, talking about books, promoting books, you know, whether they have their own book clubs. Um, 
And so I just, I get excited by it because I think when we apply the data from book talk, when we say like, hey, has this actually moved, you know, move the needle, right? How how's this done numbers? The thing that is the most exciting about book talk is that it's one of the only social media platforms that we can actually say has had a financial impact on the book business. Like Twitter is all great for brand building and existing as a human being on the internet, but like Twitter is not proven and it's 15 years of existence to actually sell books, right? Whereas book talk, like we know there's a New York Times article that came out that said book talk helped sell 20 million units in 2021, the year 2021. And this is U.S. data, but obviously the Canadian market is is very closely tied to that, and all the book talk books are very similar. So I get very excited by that because I have always felt like I understand the power of social media and its value in terms of you know authors building their brand and and all of that sort of thing. But when I think about dollars and the flow of money and how exciting that is for a legacy media business like publishing to have like that amount of money flowing towards it, and guess who's at the top of the list? Like you said, it's romance, you know. That's all very exciting to me. Voracious fans, huge sales numbers, instant bestsellers. When you hear this, you start to wonder, why isn't everyone writing romance novels? Well, just because something is fun and swoony and easy to read, that doesn't mean it's easy to write. In fact, it's kind of the opposite. Because the romance genre has been around for so long, Nobody is ever reinventing the wheel, right? That's not the goal. I mean, I think there's, you know, obviously many articles that you can read about the fact that there's only, I think there's like less than a hundred possible plot lines in history of anything anybody can ever write. And they've all been written. So then you think, okay, how am I going to be different? So the idea isn't to, again, reinvent the industry, reinvent the wheel. The idea is just to be the best at what you're doing, right? The best and not the best at following formula, but the most unexpected in a very expected genre, that's also, it's really, really hard to do. That's why, again, I said at the top of the episode, I, I have a lot of respect for, for romance authors because I think it's incredibly hard to do. And also romance authors, they write about, you know, the human condition in a way that literary authors can use, you know, a variety of tools and a variety of, you know, words to communicate that. And, and romance authors, they do it on the page, you know, right in front of us. And it's very visceral and it's very hard to do. Hard, but not impossible. Keep in mind that romance novelists are writing for readers who read on average a book a week or more. Of course, it would be difficult to write something different than the 50 plus other romances they read in a year. But great romance writers know how to strike that balance between meeting readers' expectations and keeping things fresh between the sheets of paper. Our next guest is one of Canada's rising romance stars, and she's built her reputation on modernizing classic narratives. Uh, my name is Uzma Jalaladeen. I'm a writer. I'm the author of, by the end of September, it'll be four novels. Aisha at last, my debut novel came out in uh, in Canada in 2018, followed by Hannah Han Carries On in 2021. And I have two books coming out in 2023. The first one is coming out this June. It's called Much Ado About Nada. It is a kind of loosely inspired by Jane Austen's novel Persuasion. Aisha At Last and Hannah Han Carries On were also inspired by other romances. Aisha's a riff on Jane Austen's Pride and Prejudice, and Hannah Han's an updated version of the classic Nora Ephron rom-com, You've Got Mail, which is actually a readaptation of the 1940 rom-com, The Shop Around the Corner. 
which was itself inspired by a 1937 Hungarian play. And, of course, Pride and Prejudice has been reimagined too many times to count. Some authors might feel intimidated by the huge body of work preceding them. But Uzma sees it as an opportunity to marry the classic narratives she loves with her unique personal perspective. I know for me, I am a big Jane Austen fan. I'm also a big Shakespeare fan. And uh, even when I was younger, I, I remember reading those picture books, kind of retellings of like the three little pigs, but it told from the big bad wolf's perspective. <laughs> I love like, that one. Yeah, a feminist retelling of Cinderella or Sleeping Beauty and things like that. And I always really, uh, I, I think as humans in general, we love to tell stories. And the stories that we listen to and hear or read when we're younger, they just stay with us for a really long time. So when we have other stories that come along later on that take the tropes or the archetypes of those stories that we love so much when we were younger, and they refigure them or deconstruct them and then build something new, it triggers something deep inside of us because we have this collective memory of storytelling. It's actually something I'm talking about with my students uh, today, this archetypal ideas of storytelling and how the roots of them go go back uh, millennia. They do. They do. And like the roots of these of these stories, these very familiar narratives, like they feel very cross-cultural. And one thing that I really love about your books is that you kind of bring these old stories into like a newer, more diverse kind of setting, particularly the ones that are like kind of set in Toronto. And and they kind of bring them into a moment that feels like more immediate and also really reflects like the diversity of our city in a way that, you know, wasn't necessarily the case 20 years ago in publishing. Um, can you speak a little bit about that? Yeah, that's so kind of you to say. Thank you so much. Uh, I mean, as a visibly Muslim woman who's also the child of immigrants from India, my identity is inextricably intertwined with the stories that I tell and the stories that I gravitate towards. I know all writers who come from marginalized backgrounds or diverse backgrounds say this, but like I've always been a voracious reader and growing up, I just didn't have a lot of stories that represented most of who I was as a person, maybe certain aspects of me, but not all of it. And so I'm in a way trying to fill the gap uh, in the publishing landscape by you know, just basically telling stories, exploring different identities. And for me, that identity is, you know, being the child of immigrants, coming at this from a uh, a South Asian Muslim perspective and, and what that sort of means. At the same time, I am a product of my own upbringing. And so as a voracious reader, I read a lot of Jane Austen and I read a lot of these like canon books, what we would call these, these books that have traditionally been considered a classic. And so I didn't really set out to become the the author who retells British writer stories <laughs> in a Canadian context. And yet somehow this is where I ended up. But I hope to have a really long career as a writer, so I'm sure I'll branch off and do other things as well. Many of Uzma's books take place in environments borrowed from her own experiences, growing up as a South Asian Muslim in Scarborough. Uh, with Aisha at last, I think I was really trying to capture a sense of belonging to specifically this Muslim community that centered around a mosque. My parents uh, and my family are quite observant Muslims, and I grew up attending my local mosque, uh, and it was an intrinsic part of my upbringing. And yet, when I looked at the way that mosques were sort of 
portrayed in the media was in very negative lights, like, oh, this is a hotbed of some kind of unpatriotic behavior that's being encouraged in these mosques, when really they're just community centers. Like for me, I went to the mosque because my friends were there. I went there to go look at cute boys. Like, that's what I was doing. Um, I wasn't I wasn't sitting there plotting. If anything, I was plotting how I was going to talk to that, that boy or I was going to sneak out and go hang out with my friends. And yet that spirit of fun, that spirit of community uh, and simply the sense of belonging that I got from my mosque was never really portrayed anywhere. So for my first novel in particular, I wanted to capture that, you know, and I have specific scenes that are set in the mosque that kind of are full of drama or are full of, you know, these eccentric characters that I sort of grew up with. Uh, and I wanted to portray that. So that, that was my, my, my initial inspiration. And then Much Ado About Nada takes place in this huge Muslim conference that you know pre-pandemic used to happen every year in Toronto and I grew I grew up attending these conferences in Toronto and in different parts of the United States and different parts of the city organized by it wasn't just one there was like a whole bunch of different organizers and so I wanted to capture what that looked like and that's what much to do about Nada the setting of much to do about Nada is but ultimately all of my books are love stories even though Uzma's books are all love stories she didn't necessarily set out to write romance novels I actually came to published writing very late. Well, I shouldn't say very late. I came to it the time that I was supposed to come to it. But I certainly wasn't like a, a wonder kind who, you know, published her first book when I was 18. I was in my 30s, my late 30s, when I first found any success as a published writer. And that was after almost 10 years of working on my very first manuscript. And I, you know, I'm very fortunate. I feel very happy to be part of Romance Landia, which is sort of the online and not online romance community. Um, all the people I've interacted with have been such great supporters. I found such uh, amazing writers, people who are snarky and fun and, you know, willing to give blurbs and retweet uh, my work and, uh, and I do likewise. It, it's been a really fun community. But the funny thing is, when I first wrote Aisha at Last, because I wasn't thinking about my writing or my career in terms of like from a marketing perspective, I didn't actually realize that my book kind of fit into the romance genre until after I tried to pursue publication. Uh, and I think a lot of writers have this experience where you're like, well, I'm just writing a story that I find interesting. And it wasn't until, you know, kind of sit down with marketing after uh, my editor at HarperCollins Canada basically offered to, to publish the novel where they're like, okay, so it's going to be romance. It's going to be women's fiction. And I was like, I don't even know what that means, but sure. And I'm, I'm happy to be part of this community. They're very inclusive, very fun community. But sometimes it's like the author writes the book, but then the selling of it is not really entirely your responsibility. And you're, I'm definitely guided by the people who are experts in this, which are publicity and marketing. Besides, whether or not Uzma set out to be a romance novelist, she is undeniably good at writing romance. Her books expertly hit the beats that fans of the genre love and expect like a swoony meet-cute. Chemistry is so important, right? The opening lines are so important. And the best meet-cutes happen in unexpected places. When you're not looking for something and then someone just kind of jumps out and um, not in a creepy way, but just captures your attention in a way that is respectful. <laughs> yeah, we're not writing that... mysteries and thrillers yet. <laughs> <laughs> not yet, not yet. Uh, but I think the perfect meet-cute really reveals something about the personalities of both people, right? And allows, it, it isn't overpowering. It isn't based on solely an interest in the other person's, um, the way they look, right? It's about 
really trying to get at the person below the surface. So the meet cute with my and my first novel, I thought it would be really funny to put two observant practicing Muslims who don't drink alcohol and have their meet cute in a bar. And so the main character, Aisha, is basically uh, she meets Khalid at a bar and she gets up on stage and she performs this poem where she kind of like insults him because, you know, they had a little interaction and she wasn't impressed with him. And that was kind of their meet cute. And it was reminiscent of Elizabeth Bennett and Mr. Darcy's first meet cute. Uzma knows there are a few basic things that romance readers are always going to want, even as she's putting her own twist on the material. But part of the appeal of reimagining classics through a more diverse lens is that it gives her the opportunity to complicate well-known narratives. It can be a fine line to walk. I think I'm always interested in subverting tropes, but the one thing I realized when I when I was marketed and then I found some successes in romance writer that, you know, there are certain expectations that writers have. So I'll give you an example, like um, in romances, you have like certain heat levels, right? And, and, and this is about the physical intimacy between the main relationship. Some of them have like open door love scenes and others have like closed door love scenes. And, you know, the, the level of the love scene kind of changes. Like some of them are like sweet romances and some of them are like very spicy hot romances. And I, and I was like, I think I'm going to get into some kind of trouble at some point, because ultimately, if my characters in my first two books, they don't even kiss, they don't even hold hands, because I'm, I'm talking about a, the experiences of a particular community, these observant Muslims who, you know, who just, none of that will appear on the page. And I was like, I wonder how going forward, how my description of these relationships will evolve and change. And so in my third novel, I kind of push things a little bit. And I think my readers will get a kick out of that, hopefully. But uh I, I felt like I almost had to give myself a crash course in, in the genre once my book itself was placed within this genre. And, and what I've learned is that romance in general is, uh, you know, it's written by women for women, right? Or, or for a particular audience that really appreciates all of the genre tropes and all of the expectations. You know, anyone can read romance and anyone can enjoy romance. But I think the... F- what brings me to the to the genre in particular is kind of like the feminist underpinnings of it. Like it's it's focusing on the pleasures of women. I, I really like that. And I think there's something really powerful about that. And the sort of misogyny and the patriarchy that often accompanies the dismissal of a lot of times of romance genre is something that I find, you know, personally offensive, of course. And I think it's because so often the things that appeal to women uh, has been just kind of left under the sidelines and not really taken seriously. And yet, as you said, romance is a genre that famously props up publishing. Uzma is right. More than any other genre or category, romance is dominated by women writers and women readers. And it's not just for heteronormative pairings. Queer romance is on the rise, too. And for the people who scoff at romance, Happily Ever After's Jenny Poole suggests that some self-examination might be helpful. Some people would argue that it gives people a false sense of romance, of expectations for romantic partners. To that I say... You should do better. (laughs) Uh, If someone, you know, uh, I think there is nothing, there's nothing false or exaggerated about a romantic partner being respectful, treating you with kindness, 
it's a real big self-tell when people complain that romance novels are a fantasy. It, it pretty much tells you all you need to know about that person. Romance novels, building healthier relationship standards. But seriously, while some people might still look down their noses at romance, it seems like more than ever, the fans are outnumbering the naysayers. More and more readers are discovering that, actually, they love reading about love. And the reason for that isn't exactly rocket science. I think it's because they enjoy what they're reading. Like, it's fun, you know, and not every book is super fun and funny. And, you know, it's not every book is a rom-com or whatever. But there's something very satisfying in reading a book about two characters seeing their internal struggles, their external struggles, getting so invested in these characters as you read about their lives in this one moment of time in this book, and then knowing at the end that everything's going to turn out okay. And even when you know for sure it is going to be a happily ever after, you spend 95% of the book being like, how the hell are they ever going to get to a point where I can be like, yeah, they're definitely going to get back together. Like, that's the point. Like, that's, it puts you through the ringer, but it puts you back together. And that's the enjoyment. It's, you get to see this whole scale of human emotion. I wonder how the, this collective experience that we've had over the last couple of years has influenced our, our reading preferences, especially in terms of like, yeah, have you noticed that? Oh, absolutely. Like, I literally call them COVID converts. (laughs) <laughs> That's like the joke in the bookstore. I, I'm like, are you a COVID convert? And they're like, yeah, yeah, definitely. <laughs> like, they, and they'll they'll 100% just agree that like, yeah, they were in the pandemic, they were in lockdown, and a lot of them, one way or another, found a romance book and thought, oh, this is so nice, <laughs> because it was just like a little, it was a little escape. It was a little break from all of the stuff that we were all dealing with and it's comforting there's comfort in knowing that your expectations will be met by that book exactly when we don't even know like whenever we're gonna get out of lockdown at least you know that by the end of this book these two people are gonna kiss because (laughs) if we can't know anything else at least give us that you know so maybe romance isn't quote-unquote serious but why should that mean we take it any less seriously Love is, like, maybe the single most basic human emotion. It's big and squishy and sometimes embarrassing. And for so many people, it's exactly what they need more of right now. Does that mean that romance will finally receive the level of respect to match its massive sales? Maybe. Maybe not. But somehow, I don't think it'll matter much to romance readers either way. I think they're having too much fun to care. At the end of the day, romance books bring people joy. They they bring people joy. And whether that is a monster romance about a minotaur or a seven-foot-tall blue alien coming to rescue you from intergalactic human traffickers, you know, I mean, it doesn't really matter what the subgenre is at the end of the day. It's all just fun and shows people... Being loved, loving, having wonderful relationships with friends. Some of it is totally 
out there and, and, and truly, truly something that you probably wouldn't ever think of. Um, but all in all, it's just joy. That's what it is. It's entertainment that brings people joy. Thanks for tuning in to episode two of our second season of Read the North. The show is hosted by me, Rebecca Diem, and produced and edited by Quentin Bradshaw. Theme music and scoring are by James Ellerkamp, and production assistance and episode artwork is by Haley Richardson. Thank you so much to our guests for this episode, Jenny Poole, Carly Waters, and Uzma Jalaluddin. If you'd like to support the show, please consider subscribing, leaving a review, or sharing this episode with a friend. Read the North is a co-production of The Word on the Street Toronto and CGRU 1280 AM. For more CGRU programming, you can tune in and listen live at cgru.ca. To keep up with The Word on the Street and all the latest festival news, be sure to give us a follow on social media at Toronto WOTS or sign up for our newsletter at toronto.thewordonthestreet.ca. New episodes will be released every other Wednesday all summer long. Tune in live on CGRU 1280 AM or at cgru.ca and subscribe to Read the North on the podcast platform of your choice. Thanks for listening.